being being uh, involved in sweet fellowship on this Lord's Day morning. Well, this morning we're going to be picking up uh, with our series on counseling again in the second part. Uh, this will be broken up into two weeks again. That's kind of our format. So we'll watch half of the video this morning and then have some good discussion times. And then we'll uh, next next time we'll watch the second half of the video. So as we jump in, let's take a moment in prayer. Lord, thank you for thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, that we can come together um, seeking to learn, to grow in wisdom, Lord. I pray, God, that you would help our hearts to be receptive as we study your word. Help us to lay a foundation that is firm, that is sound, that is on right doctrine, um, directly from your, your word to us, Lord. I pray that this would be a rich time of engaging conversation, that we would be um, changed and transformed into a more, more perfect image of your Son as we seek to navigate these difficult issues in culture. And may we be used as we learn to navigate these things well. May these be tangible, practical things that help our lives to be uh, salt and light to the world. Thank you, Father. Amen. So this morning, I'm excited. I like this this session here. It's going to be really focusing on kind of the fundamentals of of approach our approach to uh, sec, uh, to counseling in general. And as as Earl kind of started that out, this section is going to be talking about who is qualified to counsel. And so much of this, you know, even last week, as I was listening to Earl's presentation and and listening to the video and everything, I was you know going through my mind, why is it that this this movement didn't start till the '60s? You know, why is it that it took so long for us to get Christian counselors? Right? Well, it doesn't mean that counseling didn't exist, and it doesn't mean that it started in the '60s. What happened is we weren't using the the Bible, the Word that God has given us, the way that we ought to have been. We weren't, perhaps we weren't trained appropriately. Perhaps we didn't understand the scripture fully. Um, it's one of those things where we are called, as it says in Second Timothy, to rightly handle the word of truth and to be approved, right, in, in terms of counseling and, and how to use these things. So uh, I'm thankful that we have an opportunity now to examine these things and, and really use the word as our foundation. That's what this morning is all about. So let's run through some quick review. Um, so last week we talked about the position of secular society. So secular humanism becoming the religion of choice. Um, now, psychology has effectively replaced theology as the way by which people understand themselves and others in secular society. Now, these are going to sound, all of these are going to sound pretty objective, and, and they are in a lot of ways, but it, it it's not necessarily affecting every individual, but the, by and large, the, the subset of society that we're talking about does embrace these views. Um, a faulty view of man, which ultimately comes down to a few different things. One of them is naturalism, that man is an advanced animal, right? That they're evolved, and that ultimately the answers can be found within man themselves, right? That the answer is not outside of man, but it's inside. And by and large, man is a good creature, by default, or at the very least, man is is neutral and is impacted by society, by others, by teachers, by educators, things like that. Uh, finally, or additionally, this leads to excusing of sin and denying personal responsibility. So, as as people come into these issues, ultimately they're they're being absolved of the the guilt of those things, and ultimately being encouraged to wipe away that guilt, to replace the God-given Holy Spirit in their hearts, pointing them away from sin and towards what is right, to make them feel better. Um, biology and qualified mental illness becomes the operative um, components that they evaluate people by, right? Right. Um, 
Secular society is powerless to bring about meaningful change. And so this is kind of the crux of the matter. While secular society has a lot of benefits in terms of, of um, psychology, evaluating, observing variables, observing how people respond to circumstances and, and the outcomes of those things, ultimately, without a right understanding of the, of the individual, of the person's relation to God, about the, the, the fundamental reality at work, there's no meaningful change that can happen, right? Uh, an individual st- struggling with alcoholism through secular psychology may not struggle with alcoholism anymore, but that idol will simply be replaced with another idol. We know this from Scripture, right? Um, And finally, there is no place for God in this worldview that secular society and psychology is promulgating for us. Um, So a couple of verses that we kind of used as jumping off points for these fundamental understandings is Jeremiah 7, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And as we see in the next verse here, it says that I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Ultimately, brokenness cannot fix brokenness. We need one who is perfect. And then we have that in Jesus Christ. So running through that, uh, Romans 8, 5 through 8 is the other foundational verse for last week. Um, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So this is painting a picture for us that if our, if our foundational concepts and the, the issues that we're navigating are exclusively physical, observed with our eyes, that we see tangibly, and they don't include what God tells us in his word, what he has communicated to us, then we cannot get to God. No amount of navigating down here is going to get up to God. It's all going to be on the horizontal plane. So moving on from there, what we're going to be looking at this morning is should the pastor and the psychologist operate in different spaces? And so we'll be kind of unpacking that a little bit more in various ways, but but is there a place for a pastor to um, engage on a certain level and a psychologist on another level? What does that look like? Um, and so <clears throat> a question I guess that we'll raise here is when you look around at our current culture, religious or otherwise, do you see there being a separation between pastor and psychologist when it comes to individuals navigating emotional issues? From your own observation, what does it look like today? I'll give you a moment to think about that. As an example here, I was doing a little bit of research, and Right Now Media is, is a website where they have these various counselors who uh, deem themselves to be believers, but these are some quotes from there. It says, Sometimes, no matter how loving and supportive a pastor may be, the people who come to him need a professional counselor. Right? And then further down, God calls psychiatrists to use their education and training to help mentally ill people in a way that is more appropriate and helpful for them. Any thoughts? Tim? We got a mic coming. Well, I mean, other than just because they spend their whole career and their day-to-day studying down that path so they have or they're going to have a lot more time than our pastor would um plus they're getting paid a lot um so that's the only i mean that's the first thing i can think of but 
Um, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. When we think of qualification, one of the things we would consider is experience, right? How, how, how much time have they spent navigating these issues? And, and how then, as a result of that, how much weight do we put on their experience in terms of, of how we would want to consider who is qualified to counsel. So you're absolutely right. That's a very important component. And after we kind of go through, I think we'll probably want to revisit that and apply it for how we should think, think rightly on these matters and, and how that plays a role. Dad. Well, I think for uh, psychologists, if they're unbelievers, then they're going to have a, a non-biblical worldview. But there are Christian psychologists um, like wasn't that with James Dobson was a psychologist I mean so they I think could be helpful um, using scriptural guidelines absolutely absolutely that's exactly what we're going to be digging into further for sure any other thoughts Karen um, a lot of times um, when you're dealing with mental illness if you go to a psychologist and they feel like you need to um, have medication. They a lot of times have relationships with psychiatrists who can actually prescribe. I don't know how many pastors have relationships with psychiatrists that they can go back and forth on that. That's an excellent point. Absolutely. And we touched on that last week in terms of uh, the scripture being the foundation for addressing issues. However, there are cases where there is actually a biological chemical imbalance with an individual, and medication can be helpful, um, but we don't want to prioritize that. We don't want to, want to em- overemphasize that too much in terms of, of initially engaging with the person. We want to be careful uh, in, in evaluating what is a result of sin and what is a result of, of potentially a chemical imbalance, right? And uh, IBCD does a really good job of navigating that. Any other questions? Andy, I, I don't know if this will be addressed in uh, in, in the series uh, in total, but there are situations when uh, 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 the extreme uh, chemical imbalance and uh, violence uh, are uncontrollable, um, and then there's also borderline uh, what we call because we don't have any explanation for it, we call it demon possession, um, and then you know where's the where's the dividing line there. Uh, demon possession, and then because we don't understand it. Absolutely, no. Those, those are great points. Um, <clears throat> I mean, even when I when I think of it in, in terms of the church, there's certain issues that require legal intervention, right? And where do we draw the line of trying to manage things in in the church and then going out? This is, of course, a little bit different. But go ahead, Kim. Sometimes when people need medication, as long as um, they're held to those scriptural bounds, and I've seen sometimes that work where they kind of move through things a little bit quicker and faster as long as you're still holding it. In other words, sin is sin, and you're accountable for sin. Absolutely, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So all these factors are playing a role in who we believe is qualified to begin navigating and addressing these issues. So let's go ahead and jump. Uh, Actually, we're going to have a couple of verses. We're going to review the the two verses that are kind of foundational for what we're about to, to review. First verses in Galatians 6, one, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. We'll dig into that a little further. And then our next one is Romans 15.14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am, also, am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. So we're going to be unpacking these a little bit more fully as we go through. 
But as we hear this, let's be considering our experience, what seems normal and comfortable for us, what, what our default reaction would be in terms of, oh, someone came to me with this type of issue, in light of how these verses are unpacked and how we should consider that in the Bible. So here we are. In our first session, we talked about really why we think biblical counseling is necessary, and that's because psychology, at least secular psychology, does not have the answers. That secular psychology is built on a worldview which is contrary to the Word of God and is not really equipped to help people with the problems of the soul. Uh, That doesn't mean that everything they say is completely worthless. Uh, They have observations of human behavior, of human nature. There can be real medical issues for which people need, need medical treatment or can benefit from medical treatment if those are available. But the view of psychology and not understanding who man is in relation to God and that our problems, our greatest problems are spiritual and that there are spiritual cures, if you will, in Scripture and particularly the, the redemption provided in Christ and the gospel. Uh, those being excluded make psychology ill-equipped to help people with their real problems. Then the next question comes is, well, what about Christians who are psychologists or Christian psychology? There are many, many people who would be personally professing to be Christians and yet have studied psychology, practice, you know, as family therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists. And uh, what about them? And there are people who are writing books from these perspectives and kind of how you can combine in various ways the insights of Scripture and the insights of psychology or trying to divide up and saying, well, yeah, maybe the Bible can help you with these things, but psychology helps you with those things. And there have been a few different people who have recognized there's kind of a spectrum of views. And I'm going to go through the part of the spectrum with which I have some disagreement first before I get to what I think is the right view, which is biblical counseling. Um, And actually, these views, there have been books where this has been addressed many years ago, probably 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Larry Crabb wrote a book where he described different views from you know, simply practicing psychology to psychology with some Christianity to lots of, you know, biblical perspective, a little psychology, and then finally the purely biblical method. Uh, There has also been, in recent years, Eric Johnson has edited uh, five views of Christianity in in psychology or psychiatry, psychology, I believe, and he has different Christians representing each of the views in the spectrum. Originally it was four views, then he added a fifth view, um, but in each case, there's kind of a spectrum of something that's very, very psycholo- psychological to something that's really excluding psychology. Um, I know sometimes in life, the middle seems just the right place to be. I'm not in the middle. I'm, I'm over here, because I think that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, on the other hand, I, I want to be gracious. I think there are real believers uh, with whom I disagree on some of these things, and some of them well-intentioned. And so I want to interact respectfully with these differences of opinion, but also show why I believe um, in the sufficiency of Scripture to help you with their problems. And even there are some real dangers of trying to integrate uh, Christianity and the Bible, uh, Christianity Christianity and psychology. Uh, The first perspective, which is on this far side, heavy on psychology, light on Bible, 
is a perspective of, of, of radical separation where, yeah, you know, the Christian pastors or Christians help each other with kind of the basic spiritual problems of life. How do you uh, get saved? How do you prepare for baptism? How do you pray? But that the severe emotional problems in life, you need a qualified professional to help. And so it looks at the pastor has this little narrow realm in which he operates, and then the psychologist has this realm of helping people with their emotional problems. And as I said, the, 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 the realm for the pastor is a very narrow one. Uh, there are seminaries that would teach pastors that after you've tried to counsel somebody once or twice, if it's not getting better right away, then you need to refer them to a trained professional who can really help them because you've not really been equipped to do this because you've not been trained in psychology. Uh, Even insurance companies who insure churches are very eager to encourage us to refer uh, certain kinds of cases to professionals who can help them. Uh, there was a famous court case over 20 years ago in which a, a church was sued because a person who was receiving counseling by the church wound up taking his own life. And the family was saying that they should have referred this person to professionals who could have really helped him. And, and thankfully, at that time, uh, the church ultimately prevailed in the lawsuit and you know, one point would be lots of people who have been to psychologists also take their lives. I can't promise you if you do biblical counseling, no one you know will ever commit suicide. Um, but that's the mentality. In one of these uh, Five Views books, uh, one author named Hyder writes, if the pastor feels the problems are not responsive to prayer and spiritual help, and are severe enough to warrant specially trained or professional help, he will refer the sufferer to a trained psychologist or psychiatrist. These men are skilled in treating such problems as depression and anxiety. Another author, Caps, writes, there is general agreement that any use of the Bible in counseling should not violate the principles on which the counselor normally operates. I hope that last quote stirred you a bit. You hear he says that that a counselor, this would be the professional psychological counselor, that any use of the Bible should not violate his normal principles. Well, there's a hierarchy he's describing there, and that is that what you were trained in as a psychologist is what you run your practice by. Now, if the Bible happens to agree with that, okay. But if there's a contradiction, you need to stick with your psychological training. Obviously, I assume if you're taking this class, you realize that is a very flawed and unbiblical view because the Bible is infallible revelation from God equipping us to live. Uh, A professor Hart from Fuller Seminary, which is one of many colleges and seminaries which have extensive training offered in psychology, he says, in my opinion, the role of the pastor and the role of the counselor are different. The pastor has to declare sin in a way that sometimes sets up a barrier with a hurting person. A pastor is a guilt-inducing agent. The counseling office, however, is more permissive. Its role is to understand the person and to communicate at a level of empathy that can facilitate the healing process. Well, in that description, first of all, it makes the counselor seem much nicer than the pastor. But if you're a Christian and somebody comes to you and they're engaging in sinful behavior, they're 
practicing homosexuality, they're committing adultery, uh, whatever it is, they're stealing money. Your responsibility to that person biblically is the same, uh, whether you're a pastor or a friend or a professional counselor. And the Bible is the standard. And, but these are illustrations of how they try to separate those roles out. Uh, the problem is that they're, they're not two separate roles where, well, these are the mental health issues and these are the spiritual issues. These realms are overlapping. Uh, the same issues are being addressed, the same spiritual issues addressed, the same human problems are being addressed. Fear, worry, conflict, depression, marriage problems. Uh, they're being addressed from different viewpoints. And, and the Bible addresses these clearly and decisively. Um, you can't leave God out. And another issue with radical separation even comes to who is qualified to counsel. Uh, in, in many cases, finding that professional counselor, uh, because he's gotten the training, he's got the master's degree, the PhD from the respected university, state licensed, becomes the big issue. Well, the Bible says if someone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore him. That the quality of the person is they need to be godly. Of course, they also need to know the scriptures. And I've even, you know, to, to refer a believer to an unbeliever, or even someone who's a professing Christian who does not know the scriptures or is not living a life of, of obedience to the scriptures, would seem to me biblically to be a very great error. Uh, Rich Gans, who was actually training to be a, uh, I think working on his PhD and was doing an in- internship in psychotherapy um, when he became a Christian while he was working in a mental hospital in a very prestigious situation uh, started reading the scriptures to some of the patients and actually saw some of them converted and he said he was told be a Christian after work and leave Christianity out of psychotherapy uh, he ended up losing his job, although in the last month at the hospital there were actually two remarkable conversions, including describing how one person who like hadn't spoken in months or years, and when Rich read the scriptures to that person, he started yelling initially, but how, how people who had seemed to be totally just locked in to whatever their problem was in the mental ward, some of them, not all, but some, by God's grace through the word of God, were set free. So uh, the radical separation view kind of tries to maintain psychology as a science separate from you know pastoral work and we would believe this is a very unbiblical perspective um, a second approach which moves in this direction is a approach of trying to integrate psychology and the bible and they would say, yeah, you should choose psychologists who happen to be Christians. And they, that would be the ideal combination to help people with their problems, that you can uh, take these insights of psychology, but you know, kind of add some scripture, add some biblical principles to it, and, and this is just seen as the ideal. This has been very, very influential in the church in the last generation. Many of the best-known figures in Christianity are really psychologists. And you'll even, you know, one guy was on the radio every day and he was introduced as psychologist and author. And yet he, you know, he was on Christian radio stations. And there have been many others as well. And there have also been pastors who really are preaching kind of a pop psychology. And 
the negative here is that these are people who have spent many, many years of their life, thousands of hours of their life, being trained in psychology from this other worldview. And they tend to use that as the starting place when they're trying to help people. And my observation has been, as I've read some of their books, and and the books are mixed. Uh, Not everything in them is bad, but oftentimes even the books themselves is where they're trying to take one of the key tenets of contemporary psychology and then they try to kind of tag on a couple verses as proof texts and they're actually missing the thrust of what the Bible says. The classic example of this is the teaching on self-esteem. And there have been Christian psychologists who've written books about self-esteem and they'll, they'll take the verse where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And, and they will say, they will conclude from that, that first you must love yourself and you must learn to love yourself before you can love your neighbor or even love God. And that is not a principle derived from Scripture. And that's not even the proper use of the Scripture. You know, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second imperative is love your neighbor as yourself. And the as yourself is not the main as yourself is not the main thrust. And what Jesus means in that verse is as yourself. He never says you need to love yourself. You'll never find that in Scripture. He's going to say the problem is you, you love, I know you love yourself. You love yourself too much. What you need to do is love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. It's the same thing Paul does in Ephesians 5 where he says, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. He says, he says for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. And so, again, it's actually turning the teaching of Scripture on its head. Now, again, I can see why it's popular. People who love themselves were probably very happy to be told they don't love themselves enough. And the reason they don't get along with other people is they need to learn to love themselves more. That's attractive to the flesh. But it's unbiblical. Now you say, well, how do you help a person who feels really badly about himself. Well, the Bible would say that the person who's constantly, from a biblical perspective, the person who's constantly down on himself and, oh, I'm no good, I'm not attractive, nobody loves me, nobody likes me, is just as guilty of self-love and self-obsession as the person who's very proud saying how great he is because his focus is on himself rather than on God and others. Uh, An interesting verse that's probably not in these books about self-esteem, is in, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, but realize this, that in the, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, and so on. Haters of good. So the very head of the list of the horrible things that will happen in the depravity of humanity sinking to the abyss is lovers of self along with all these other evil things. So that, that's one of, of several examples I could give. Uh, an, another would be that you know, the guys on the radio who write the books, sometimes they'll, they'll often begin a sentence saying, well, I'm no theologian. And a friend of mine said, well, then study your Bible <laughs> and uh, get off the radio until you did. Uh, but, and, but then 
the guy writes a book about the problem of evil and how to deal with bad things in your life. Friends, the only way you can deal with the problem of evil is to know some theology. Understand the sovereignty of God and uh, the fallenness of the world. And um, Another example would be typically integrationists will buy into the disease model. Uh, codependency and you know whatever it is, uh, you, whatever your problem is, labeling it a disease, addressing it as a disease, they tend to rely upon and accept psychological findings and research very uncritically while neglecting solid, in-depth Bible teaching. Uh, and again, when, when push comes to shove, what do they know? What have they spent thousands of hours and years of their life studying? Not the scriptures, but psychology. Um, in some of these five views books, we have people who are professing Christians. What, what I've seen is some of them who are really, you know, into the psychology, and that's their training, is they're accepting the presuppositions of psychology almost uncritically and are willing to go against the scriptures. And in one chapter, and I admired the guy for his honesty, but a, a guy who teaches in a Christian college says that he's prepared to accept homosexuality as being something normal. Again, he has guts to say that as a Christian, but he's dead wrong. The Bible makes it very plain that homosexuality, like adultery and fornication and lust, is a sinful behavior. But again, because it's accepted as normal in psychology, that's that's where he's coming from. Likewise, uh, another place, an author just assumes that we would all agree that self-esteem is really a great thing and that we should be working. To, and that's a premise that I would question and want to refine a great deal. Sometimes with these training, people with these trainings will, will speak of those who don't have the training, including pastors, in very condescending terms. You know, that uh, we are limited, you know, pastors are limited in, in their understanding of people because we don't have the insight that the psychologist does into human behavior and all of its complexity. That's actually a paraphrase of a quote. Sometimes they'll even denigrate the sufficiency of Scripture, you know, criticizing those who have these very simplistic principles. Life in the 21st century is too complicated to you know, rely merely on the Scriptures. Um, Again, I'm sure there are people who are psychologists practicing psychology who are really seeking to please God, and some are much better than others. I have heard stories from my counselees of some of the kinds of therapies they've received from Christian psychologists that you would almost not believe. I've actually had, I had a case of a couple who had been married a short time and they'd gone to a Christian psychologist in our region and because they had not had sex or even gotten close to having sex before they got married, which, by the way, I think is a really biblical thing not to do, to not have sex before you're married, but the counselor questioned the sex drive of the man and had him look at what we would say is pornographic pictures to make sure that it aroused him, uh, which is, I guess, a fairly common practice among some in psychology. But when Jesus says, if you look upon a woman for the purpose of lusting after her, you've committed adultery in your heart, um, that's just something I think if you're thinking from a biblical perspective, it would never occur to you to do something that wrong. Um, another case, I was actually driving and listening to the Christian radio station, and there was a call-in show with a guy I would consider to be an integrationist, where he's a psychologist who's a Christian on Christian radio station, and he was talking about 
boundaries. I don't think he was one of the people who wrote the book, but he was talking about that concept and how we need to set boundaries in our lives. And a woman called in whose husband wasn't a believer, and uh, she was describing how her husband is just not a very grateful man, how he's kind of a grouchy man. And so the guy on the radio program, the expert PhD guy, says essentially, well, what you need to do is set some boundaries. You can't let him treat you this way. And again, it wasn't physical abuse. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't right. But his answer was that you need to, you know, if he doesn't treat you better, basically one night just put a can of beans unopened on his plate and say, until you start treating me with respect, this is what you're going to get. And I think there may have been something about separate beds as well. And, and the lady said, but She said, but I thought the Bible says that I should submit to him and be quiet and treat him well. And and actually, she was right. It was the first time the Bible had been mentioned in that call, and it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 that she was paraphrasing. But Mr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so actually said, oh, no, that never works. Well, actually, it does work. It has worked. Uh, But again, his mentality was his boundaries thing and his expertise um, Rich Gans, again, who had gotten all of this training in psychology, psychotherapy, very impressive academic uh, background. When he became a Christian, trying to figure out what he's going to do when he got kicked out of the hospital, he described how Christian universities with psychology programs wanted him to teach there. And he says, but I don't know the Bible very well. I'm a brand new Christian. And they say, well, that doesn't matter. Uh, they just wanted a Christian, a psychologist who happens to be a Christian. To pause the video, but I took that as an opportunity. So um, I think you painted a, a number of pictures, but one of the examples to me that really resonated is the idea of self-esteem, right? If you start the conversation by saying, Self-esteem is if so important for people. This is, this is something we need to pursue. Let me find a verse for that. And then you go to your scripture and you find, you know, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Clearly this implies that, that self-esteem is important, so I'm going to use that. Rather than saying, my operative principle is built from the foundation that scripture lays, that man is deceitful above all else, and, and that First Timothy 3 talks about being lovers of self as the, um, the pinnacle of depravity in the last days, right? So I think that kind of painted that picture for us in a powerful way. Um, and then additionally to, you know, like what my dad mentioned, you know, there are psychologists out there who are Christians. Now, if they're operating under the principles, if their starting point is Scripture, that's perfectly fine. It doesn't mean that if they have a degree, they're always operating under these principles. But the concern is how they approach the issues. And that's what we want to be very careful about, that we're, um, we're addressing these emphasizing what scripture communicates. But uh, before we jump into too much more, was there anything uh, that stood out to you guys in the session? Andy. I'm curious to know that uh, for the rest of the series, does he ever cover the other, the other four? He's just touched on one today. This is half of the first one, so we're going to get into synergism next, and he's going to have, uh, unpack a little bit more for sure. For sure, and and the truth is, too, he touches on things. This is a fairly long course, and we're going to get into much greater detail on all these items as well. So it's kind of hard because these issues do bleed into so many others, um, but it's still valuable and profitable to discuss, even if we're just going to be touching on some things. Yeah. 
I uh, thought that was kind of amusing, the point that was made about um, psychologists versus pastors and how pastors are looked at as kind of the um, not so kind, you know, because they're giving this harsh message and um, the uh, compassion and empathy or whatever of the psychologist. I thought that was actually kind of funny um, because the Word of God, I mean, if you're not convicted of your sin, you'll never change, you know, anyway. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I just appreciated him explaining the loving your neighbor as yourself um, verse biblically. I just, I that always brings up a memory to me when I was in college at a leadership conference. Um, we had a bunch of guest speakers, and one of them actually did stand up and basically preach to um, all of us leaders that that verse meant that you have to have a healthy amount of self-love, and here's how you go through and love yourself. And if you really aren't focused on loving yourself first, how are you expected to love other people? And I just thought that was so, I kind of walked out of there thinking, what on earth was that? And went back to people and asked, and no one seemed to have a problem with it. And that just kind of, that shocked me that it was so, uh, that that the church accepted that and was like, oh yeah, this that sounds right. I'm so glad he reminded me that I really need to go and love myself so much. And it just reminds me of, you know, the battle we're fighting now, even throughout the church, local churches and just how we need to fight that. It's dangerous. Oh, that's so true. If we are not biblically literate, then when these ideas are presented, they'll just slide on in and be accepted as truth rather than really interacted with with the scripture as our foundation. So you're absolutely right. Any other thoughts? Avia, she's on board. Um, this to me was really interesting as well. Martin Caps, Bible should not violate the principles on which the counselor normally operates. Just going out and saying it, you know, I'm going to do what my training, my education, my experience has, has taught me and equipped me. And that is all flesh, right? Like that's what we saw in the Romans verse where it's talking about that. That's the equipping that comes from this world that will never lead to God. So that operative principle will not lead us to change that is effective, that is actually going to, to change a person's life for the better. It will just rearrange the issues, right? Do you have any thoughts about the concept of who's qualified to counsel, which of course I'm sure you were thinking about previously, but um, any anything specific now that we're, we're right at this point? Was there anything in the video that, that kind of changed your mind? Did you go into it going, oh, I'm kind of leaning towards this, now I'm leaning towards that? Sarah? I think to some capacity, all Christians should be counseling. Uh, if you know the word, if you're, if you're Bible literate, and if you're walking with the Spirit, there's someone in your life you can be counseling. Um, that doesn't address like formal counseling, but we all should be. Absolutely, absolutely. The call for everyone is to be diligently finding yourself approved, rightly handling the word of truth, right? Absolutely. Any other thoughts? Andy? I noticed that uh, throughout this uh, uh, session today, uh, I know that the, uh, the, the key word we should notice is emotional issues. Um, so, so, yeah, if it's only emotional, then, you know, all pastors are qualified to uh, tread into the uh, psychologist realm. But what is more than emotional? Then, you know, uh, I have to wait till the rest of, for, for the rest of the series. But I don't know if uh, that's going to be addressed, but are, are we only dealing with emotional issues? 
It's a good question. Ultimately, these are going to be issues of sin, but the word emotional is used in their handout a few times. So I'll be honest with you, I don't necessarily have the perfect answer for how they're going to take emotional and, and kind of translate that. But as I understand it, they really are approaching this in terms of, of the, the tangible issues. And I think that emotional would be the separation between medical is kind of how they're approaching it. The issues that we navigate mentally and, and emotionally, of course, but there's got to be a mental component. Um, and I'm sure that that's something that they'll unpack a little bit further. Um, but I think we would probably separate those from medical. So, um, what uh, as just another another kind of take on this? When we hear or are presented with psychological, oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead, Daniel. No, it's fine. I just wanted to say um, emotional issues too tend to be spiritual issues. So um, if it's not a medical issue, if it's not a hormonal imbalance, or if it's not a something that that is actually wrong with physically. If it's an emotional issue, it tends to be a spiritual issue along with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh, that's right. Any other thoughts? Go ahead, Tim. <clears throat> okay, this is kind of hard for me. <laughs> so just touching on kind of the addendum to what Andy said, there are certain environmental situations that, whether Christian or non-Christian, <laughs> and you just, it, it might be people around you that there really isn't hope <laughs> of no matter what you do biblically, being in that situation. <clears throat> so I just want to mention that there are situations that are not thought of in a popular way (laughs) where it's tougher than you would think to counsel that person because in any normal situation whether Christian counselors or psychologists they don't know they don't fully understand that part of it (laughs) I don't know if I'm making any sense Um, we're just talking about the, the darker spectrum of Issues, which may be spiritual heavily as well, we don't know, but they're called something else in psychological terms, and that's always been a huge issue for me. And I have found scripture to back, um, heal, to heal me, whereas in psychiatry in my younger days did absolutely nothing. Medication, it was all environmental. And I was healed by God and by walking away. And there are situations that it comes down to that, but where I get concerned is when um, either Christians in the past or psychiatrists don't have any experience in that arena at all. They live on a a different realm. (laughs) They don't understand that that's out there, and they haven't lived it. But I'm finding a lot more people are coming to be aware of this and it may be a spiritual thing. Mm. That's a it's very important point. In terms of there are some very delicate and dynamic issues that need to be dealt with. And we can't under we can't undercut that by saying the Bible always has an easy answer for everything. You're absolutely right. These things are incredibly difficult to navigate and there's of course Without the experience that comes from navigating those issues from a Christian worldview, you're going to be sitting down and you're going to hear something that you go, I don't even know where to begin. And you're absolutely right. And so I think what we 
take away from this is when we're faced with those types of issues, uh, when we're faced with, for example, like that caller saying, I'm in a, let's say it's an abusive relationship with my husband, right? Where we start isn't what has secular society said worked in the past, right? Where we start is what are the underlying fundamental principles that Scripture says, right? Because the Bible is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness, right? We believe that, that this Bible can speak to those issues, Now, in terms of concretely how those are going to be worked out, we don't always know at the top of our heads, but that's where we can talk to our Heavenly Father and seek Him in prayer and submitting it. And God can lead us through those types of very delicate situations. And there are all kinds of environmental... We have to, as ones who hope to uh, counsel and encourage others, we have to put ourselves in their shoes. We have to try and understand, and we have to not pretend that we're going to be able to give easy answers. Because you're absolutely right, we, we can't give these trite answers. We have to really walk in what the Word is teaching us in terms of understanding so that we can love well. That's a great point, Tim. Any other thoughts, considerations? Excellent. Now, um, in terms of the integrationist perspective, so integrationist is considered a psychologist who happens to be a Christian, and many would say that they're best uh, suited to help people with their problems. But if that's, if that's true, what are some of the potential challenges, or what are the pros? Maybe there's pros. What are, how would you think that through? Hope? I think what's scary to me about <clears throat> all of this is just the idea that we talked about last week of relativism. And just, like, oh, what that scripture says to you, like, it can mean what you want it to mean, like the love yourself thing, or all of these, like, putting, like, psychiatrist training and teaching above what the scripture says. It's, It's like, I don't know, it's just relativism scary. Yeah. No, that's excellent. So let's say you have a Christian psychologist, you know, a Christian, and you have a psychologist, those are sort of competing worldviews, right? So we have to somehow reconcile them, and one is going to win out over the other, and that's kind of the underlying principle here, right? Um, any other? I mean, because you're, you're exactly right. That that is an incompatible worldview that says you determine reality based on what feels right for you, and then the other is saying you are operating in a world that God has created, and these are the principles how uh, that that He has established. Go ahead, no. Yeah, this model just reminds me of the whole um, illusion of, you know, the, the what's the word I'm looking for? Oh my goodness, I just lost the word. Um, but where you're trying to make God fit into your self, your worldview. Um, vending machine, <laughs> the vending machine God model um, was what I was thinking. It To me, this sounds like, okay, we have a problem. We have a person with a problem. Let's try and figure it out based on our own human intellect and then make God fit into it somehow. So, like, okay, what did we... I think you touched on it. What does, you know, um, humanistic worldview or human psychology think about this? And then wh- how do we make the Bible fit into that? seems a little bit integrationist to me. And that just reminds me of the whole, you know, genie God or vending machine God where it's like, I really want this. So how do I make the Bible support what I want? And that just, it's too similar for me to feel comfortable. I think, it, I think it's dangerous because um, when you first uh, hear about it, I think it sounds good because you think uh, you want to take the best from all options. Yeah. 
and you're not taking the bad things from it, you're taking the best things from it. But I think uh, where the danger can come in is that um, you, you're putting, um, the Bible loses its place at the top, and so I think your foundation is not locked in anymore. And so, yeah, maybe not all of, you know, there's not, it's not all bad on one thing, but you need to make sure that there is a hierarchy and that one one is ultimately way above the other. And I think that's lost with this uh, way of thinking. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, in terms of a doctor, we want a doctor who's accredited, qualified, who has lots of numbers and letters after his name, right? Numbers. Well, maybe numbers. I don't know. Maybe he's got multiple letters, and you just have to put a multiplier there. Go ahead, Andy. Uh, It boils down to the word integration. Uh, We have to to be clear about what it means uh, with the word integration, because um, nowadays in modern society, uh, you think up a very, very valid word, and if you strike down that word, that means you know you're close-minded and and you know so so integration. What do you mean by integration? Uh, you know, I suspect that it, you know in their mind they, they mean compromise, and it, if it means compromise, then there's a problem. But the word integration by itself, a priori, is a good word. So you know we have to be careful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when we think about our Romans verse, you know, it says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, full of all, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. That's the church in Rome that Paul is addressing. Um, do they have all kinds of educations? That you're filled with education. You're filled with these, these excellent scholarly works. No, you're filled with the Holy Spirit of power, right? That is what the foundation is. And if we say, you know, if Paul was to say, you're filled with lots of Holy Spirit, now go ahead and fill yourself with some of the secular knowledge of the day, because then you're going to be real balanced out. No, it's, we need to be filled with with the Holy Spirit. Any other thoughts or questions? I don't even know what my next slide is. How should we respond? I think we might have asked this already, but how do we respond when presented with psychological analysis, research, and recommendations? What should we do with that? What's the function that we use in our minds to interpret that? Do we just dump it and not even pay attention to it? Andy? Uh, it, It speeds up the process of diagnosis. Um, you know, it, uh, instead of spending like several fr- sessions on, um, on end to, uh, to diagnose, uh, you know, those observations and those recommendations in the DSM-3 manual uh, speeds up the process a little bit. But how to deal with it and how to solve it is a different issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, how we filter it, how we view it. Um, how we respond with our biblical worldview. I have this very clear memory of being in youth group when I was probably a junior or senior and being at the uh, the Miles house and Jan taking those clear paper, you know, those like sleeves and drawing grid lines on it and holding it up and looking through it and thinking, these grid lines are our biblical worldviews, the things that we're thinking things through. And so we're all we're all going to have our worldviews, but what are those grid lines that you're drawing for yourself? What is what is it that you're putting into your mind to assess everything else through? So I think it's making sure we have our solid worldview according to what the Bible says, and then thinking about the things that we're presented with, whether it's psychology or anything, um, making sure we're thinking about those things appropriately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sarah. 
and just pray for discernment. There is, I mean, the Lord knows the answer to these things and which psychological viewpoints are okay and helpful. And, you know, he can give us all that wisdom and discernment. So just keep um, praying over them and asking him which things are helpful and which things need to be thrown out. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an excellent point. You know, I think of, uh, there's a, an influential YouTuber out there. We watch the, we listen to this kind of a podcast where, um, he talks about his, um, transition from being a Calvinist to ultimately throwing away his biblical worldview and embracing secular humanism and all that. And it starts, he starts with his discussion about how he began to look in the science, the science of things, and in terms of evolution, uh, what the, what the gene descendant pool looked like and, and, um, mapping the human genome, how that applied in certain areas. And and so he basically, the more he studied, the less he believed in the word. And the evidence led him to another conclusion. That's the conclusion that's fed based on the scientific research. In the same way, observational research is is beneficial in that it can help us to under to to, to get a picture of, of these things. But if we if we follow the secular conclusion through and we take the recommendation as far as why they believe that this is the case, then we're going to end up somewhere other than the Bible. But the observation itself is is what happens. That's that's exactly what what is is valuable for us in our assessment as we say, oh that's because if we see this in the word, right? If we if we see those observations and say you know, ask the person writing the paper as to how they reached those conclusions and why they think that happened, then we're going to be going somewhere other than where Scripture would have us go. So it's it's really, the evidence is is ob- objective, but if we're listening to what society tells us that evidence means, then we're going to be going in a different direction. So, go ahead. 99% of the truth is not 100% of the truth, and that's what that makes me Absolutely, absolutely. So there's absolutely a place for observational analysis and things. Any other thoughts or questions? Let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians 2, verse 6. And I want us to kind of hear how the Bible addresses some of these things. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. All right. I'm going to be reading verses 6 through 10. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. We have such an incredible hope in these words that we can have a relationship. When it says fullness of deity, the creator of the universe, the holy God who holds all things together by the word of his power, as we begin to grasp just a little bit of who God is, it becomes more and more laughable that we would look to the creature for discernment and wisdom when we have access to the creator, right? Um, so to me, it's, it's just a matter of us as a church holding fast 
what is clear in Scripture, holding fast to these commitments. And if we are walking in accordance with his word, we will be filled. And we ought to, as it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, do our best to present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So that's our foundation. Next week, we're going to dig a lot more into synergism, and it's going to go even further in, in a lot of the things that Andy brought up. So we'll look forward to that. Um, be thinking throughout the week. Again, these are, these are, are really, um, some of these things hit really close to home. So be thinking about these things. Now is a great opportunity to talk, and I'd encourage you to talk amongst yourselves. Grab myself, Dan, Earl Jackson aside. We'd love to talk about these things further, and we're really looking forward to where God is going to bring us as a body as we study the Word in this. So. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that um, we have this opportunity to look at the world and interpret it through the lens of Scripture, Lord. I pray that you would use this study to affirm what is good and true and right and help us all to be rightly handling your word and that through this we would um, be able to bear much fruit for you, for the kingdom of heaven, that we would be able to love and be, be excited for the opportunities that you give us to care for the souls of those around us, Lord. What a great calling we have and what a joy that we can walk in that, we can enter in by the power of your Holy Spirit, not being afraid... We may not have all the right words, because we won't, we never will, but you do, and you equip us, and you've promised that you won't leave us or forsake us, and that you'll withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly and those who, who seek you, Lord Jesus. And as we seek you, we seek wisdom. We want to know you better. We want to know how to love those around us better. So we pray that you would meet us and equip us, Lord. Bless this day as we go forth from here. Help us to have sweet fellowship. Prepare our hearts for the worship service, to sing your praises, and to hear your word. And uh, pray that it would be a rich time, Father. Thank you, Lord. Amen.